0: and welcome to Potshot. I'm Alex Towles, and this week I am joined by Manus and Seb as we take you through the Luton game and the Villa game. But before we get into any of that, it's our traditional pot shot question. And if you haven't been listening to the Arsenal women's podcast that we also produce, firstly you should, and secondly they've kind of been one-upping us with the uh, the weirdness of their Potshot questions. So I'm gonna try and match Will with this one. Today's Potshot question is, you have to get from where you are right now to the exact opposite side of the world. And you have two options. You can either drill through the center of the earth or you can walk around the earth in a perfectly straight line, give or take about 50 to 100 meters. If you hit a body of water on that walk you are given like a pedal powered boat or something so you continue to move at through your own power all the way uh, and if you're going to drill through the center of the earth you are given the means to do so which way are you going manas so no, we can't fly right no no flying you are either walking or drilling
1: okay so i'm in i'm mumbai what is the opposite side of Mumbai? Of the world? Is it somewhere in America? Yeah. In the original
0: version of this question, I was just going to say, you have to get to Australia via this method, but then I realized it'd be much, much easier for you. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm much closer to Australia than you guys. Um, so I'll, so I, I guess drilling would be pretty hard. So I'll just walk. Because most of it might still be walking. I guess there'll be a big ocean, but I guess most of it might still be a walk. Fair enough.
2: Seb? I really thought I would only have to deal with these questions every two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just quickly, this drill that I'm using to drill through the earth, it's how big and how electric is it in terms of how much manual labor would I have to do to drill through the earth?
0: It's person sized. It's big enough to make a hole that you can get through. Um but remember that the core of the earth is very warm.
2: Oh that's true, yeah. I I didn't think about the the whole environmental uh implications of that. Yet and I'm I'm probably going to stick with walking as well.
0: Oh well this is a much it's more more boring. I thought I thought you'd be going with the less effort option of Going straight through the centre of the earth. But the going straight through the centre of the earth would be literally physically impossible, so empirically you have both answered the question correct. Into the games then. A uh, midweek Premier League game means we've got two games to talk about today, and oh boy, what a two games they were. On Tuesday, we did something that nobody ever wants to do, and visited Luton. It was a ding-dong affair that finished 4-3, where mistakes from set-pieces and some not great shot-stopping from Raya made a much tighter affair of what should have been a routine win. We were 1-0 up, then 2-1 up, then 3-2 behind. In the end, we needed an equaliser from Clutch Kai Havertz, recently crowned Player of the Month, and a winner from the final kick of the game. Fortunately, Declan Rice is starting to develop a very nice habit of scoring those. Then, on Saturday, we visited another popular tourist destination, Birmingham, where we faced this season's surprise package Aston Villa. Our hosts took the lead early through a quality John McGinn finish, setting them up perfectly to frustrate them for the remaining 80-ish minutes of the game. We managed to generate 1.4 expected goals, even while final third sloppiness meant that many promising situations were not turned into shots. In the end, we weren't able to find a breakthrough, and it finished 1-0 to Unai Emery's side, in a result that left the heads of the Arsenal fanbase, on average, hotter than the core of the earth, which I've just asked you to drill through. We'll start with the Villa game, as it's freshest in our minds, and then look back on the Luton performance. Manas, how did it feel to get Unai emery
1: Oh my god. Okay, so I'm just going to... I'm so annoyed by the Villa game because, because you know, when you play all the football and a game where you could have scored maybe three or four goals, you end up losing 1-0. It's just... It's such a kick uh, in, in in your in the behind, especially against Una Emery, who... I don't know. I think Villa, Villa to me, feels like very much flavor of the month right now. Uh, I mean, they are playing good football, but the game they played against us, I mean, we should have just killed them, man I'm just super annoyed that we lost that game.
0: The more I look back on this game, and to be fair, I have only watched it once, whereas I believe you guys have watched it twice. It was frustrating, really frustrating at the time, because, not because we played really badly, but because we were doing pretty well and just couldn't capitalize on it in any way, shape, or form. Um, Seb, does that correlate with how you are feeling about it?
2: Probably, yeah. I mean, I, I think the thing that really sets people off here is the fact that it is Unai Emory and we've spent the last few weeks sort of trying to negotiate with ourselves that this isn't sustainable, that they're just as Manas said, flavor of the month and that they haven't just beaten uh, Man City and Arsenal in relatively similar fashion um, through their own merit, you have to say. A lot of the things that didn't go well for us are also partly to do with the way they're playing and the the unique challenge they propose to to teams. Uh, So I think that's where the big frustration lies, as well as just some of the other in-game bits that we're probably going to talk about.
0: Yeah, looking back on it in the cold light of day, you have to just take a deep breath and accept that this Aston Villa side are just a very good team. And sometimes in football, you lose to very good teams. That's, that's the game. Uh, but as mentioned, we did actually play quite well. So let's focus on the good before we drill into the bad. Uh, Manus, what was your favorite thing about Arsenal's performance in this game?
1: I feel we we were pretty relaxed in this game. Um, I think up until the final third, we played a very good game of football versus Villa. I feel it's just, I don't know, maybe it was like a dare thing, like let's try to make every pass a sloppy pass and a short pass or it goes behind somebody. Um, Maybe, I don't know what it was. But we just did play our game in the final third. But apart from that, I think... Uh, the way the villa was set up, and the way we just play through them uh, a lot of the game, uh, especially central progression in this game, I think was fantastic. Um, we played through them a lot. Uh, we made vertical passes. There was there was rotation. There was aids. There were eights dropping in to receive. I think we it just had everything. Um, uh, we isolated our wingers at times against their fullbacks. It just had everything except the finish and uh, the passing. And do you know what happens when this sort of games comes up? Uh, they they scored early, early-ish, through the only spell of possession that they had, I think, in the first half. And uh, it, 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 they just went through us. And so it's a good goal. I'm not going to say that's a bad goal. And sometimes it happens. But when... These sort of games happen and you, you're not able to play. It just gets you, It gets in your head. Like it, it It felt like we couldn't believe the time and space that we had in this game. And it's very reminiscent to me of the time that Emery was at Arsenal where he used to set us up like this. Like incredible high line, very scrunched up mid-block, but no pressure on the ball. And uh, I remember getting pummeled against, I think, United or Chelsea where we lost in 4-1 or something like that. Uh, I remember Diego we also drew us. with
2: Watford two two when they had about twenty six shots on target.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. And I I can't believe how they've like played versus City, where they had twenty two shots. Like that wasn't. I mean, it's just Emery stuff, you know.
0: Just Emery
1: things. Um,
0: you mentioned the the vertical passing and that's something that we've touched on a lot as a real problem area for us this season Uh, but Zinchenko and Rice you think had pretty good games in this regard
1: yeah so I think Zinchenko was the right choice for this game Um, just in terms of I think we expected them to maybe press us us high up a lot more which they did not do at least not as much as I did expect them to Um, but Zinchenko is probably the right choice in terms of possession and what we thought this game would become. Uh, And we also obviously need to manage the minutes of Zinchenko now that uh, Tomiyasu is out. So, I mean, we had to play Kivior in the game versus Luton. I think Zinchenko had a good game. Uh, I wouldn't really blame him for the goal, uh, even though it came from our left side. Uh, It's just, I think it was a great team goal from Pilla. I don't think he made a mistake there. Uh, as as was the talk on the timeline at the time, uh, on Twitter at the time, uh, and Rice, I think again he he's uh, he's had he's having a really good couple of uh, weeks for us, I think, in terms of possession and general play. But uh, I think he's just weight of passing, the way that he's you know the the, uh, the zip that he's putting on passes out wide to Saka is just really good to see. Uh, obviously supporting in attack and then obviously cleaning up everything. Uh, defensively, which we've talked about plenty of times. I just felt like on the goal, uh, he he's the one with Gabriel who goes down towards their our left side to close Bailey down. I don't think he needed to make that because I think Gabriel mostly had it covered. And if he would be in the central spot where he usually would be, I think he cleans that goal up much better than what uh, White attempted to do. But I think he had a game game. I think we've managing him pretty well, uh, letting him receive facing goal rather than back to goal. It's just it's doing good things for him. I think. I don't
0: really want to focus on the goal that they scored that much because, like, while as you mentioned, there was things we could have done to defend it better. Any time you concede, there's got to be things you could have done to defend it better, and like, unless there's lots of glaring errors, I don't think it merits. Using hindsight on it in that sense. Sometimes good teams score good goals against you. It is what it is. Um, I do want to drill into, uh, central passing a bit more because even I noticed, like, while watching live that Zinchenko was able to pick up the ball from the back line and in, sent in, inside the villa block a lot more than he has done in previous games. So Seb, what do you make of our central progression this game, and do you think this was a sign of us getting better at it, or do you think it's a fact that it's part of Villa sitting off but also sitting high?
2: Yeah, I I would claim it as a mixed bag with some aspects that might appear good on the surface of it, but are probably as much of a consequence of how Villa set up against us than it is our own play. Um, I generally agree with Manus that the way Declan Rice has progressed over the last few weeks is is really promising. And he's been, I think, in four of the last five games, the, if not the second most touch player uh, in the team, which is remarkable, considering that's usually Saliba and speaks as much to his own development as it does to a a slight shift in in team dynamics. Um, But... As much as there was some very good central passing, a lot of that is down to Villa's challenges they propose to us when you when have the ball, right? The way they set up is they compact the pitch insofar as they're sitting quite high. They're, they have their offside trap that is uniquely well drilled and requires a level of commitment by the players that probably wasn't there at Arsenal, which is one of the many reasons why Emery's tenure here didn't work out that well. But what it does do is it compacts the area of play quite significantly. They were really good at sort of clamping down on um, getting into the eights when they are higher up and sort of getting wide combinations going insofar that once a pass is played into the wingers, not going in behind, but sort of stationary to set off combinations out wide, they would immediately clamp down on us and um, illegally or legally stop those combinations from occurring. I'm, I'm still undecided on whether the amount of loose passes we had, especially in the first half, is a consequence of them sort of closing down passing lanes and passing angles to the extent where those were forced or just a lot of singular individual errors. I mean, once Saliba plays the ball to a corner for us, that's when you realize you're probably in in a bit of trouble. Um, But we did manufacture a couple of good opportunities. The big issue here is, and and this is something Arteta sort of touched on in the post-game interview as well, there were a lot of instances where we were able to get past their back line but in a way that it wasn't prepared enough for us to do anything with it. We at some points we did start to force that ball into Martinelli, especially. Um to a point where once you be once you're behind the line and, and Martinelli receives, you A have about 20 meters left to play into you have Villa defenders running back towards you. So the, the amount of time you have to make decisions is, is significantly shrunk. And you're in a position where you have to control the ball on the turn and in momentum while having your head clear on your next decision. And it's it's an awkward position to be in. And it's, it's a big reason why their uh, sort of high line works as well as it does.
0: Yeah, the high line's an interesting one, right? Because... <laughs> I'm pretty sure we've talked about on the pod that in theory, playing a high line but not really pressing is a terrible way to play in the Premier League because any half-decent team is just going to ping it straight over you and get in behind all the time. And yet, we weren't able to do that against Villa at all, really. like As you mentioned, we found it sometimes but we weren't able to turn those situations into good shots. Why do you think that is?
2: There's an educational example of this recently in the uh, Chelsea Spurs game, where Spurs, with the caveat of them having nine men and Chelsea having 11, uh, were put under some of the same issues where they were forcing those balls in behind and having awkward ways of trying to finish before sort of figuring out how to play against a high line like that. And one of the key factors in that, and something that we probably could have used more, are sort of off-ball runs that combobulate, discombobulate the last line, insofar that if you have Havertz going beyond the last line, sort of dragging someone with you, you discombobulate the organization of the line. And at that point, when the line isn't as set as it is, then that's the opportunity where you can play the balls in behind to an actual runner. You then also have the advantage of having someone who's off-ball, who's already in behind the line. They're more set to receive once you are in a position where you have momentum and are able to charge at goal. It's, it's one of many ways you can you can go around that, um, but it's something we haven't really done and something that Ateta probably mentioned as one of the reasons where we didn't prepare the movements of getting in behind as much as we probably should have.
1: On the high line, right, I think we just, like I said uh, in in the beginning, I think we were just surprised a little bit. The fact that there was so much time and space with uh, the defenders had on the ball and there was so much space behind the Villa backline, line. And I just couldn't believe that we didn't start doing the high high ball earlier and sooner. And once we did start to do it, we got in behind them, I think, on a number of occasions. And it's just the control of the ball or the final ball or or a pass in the build-up in the final third or while, while we're transitioning. It just let us down. I think I, I was just, just looking at Twitter and I think there is a comp... Which is almost worth two minutes, which is just bozo moments from us, and like just bad passes and bad technical. So once you've once you've played the high ball, right? I think Seb was talking about it, and uh, I think he's he's approached it from a decision making standpoint, and that's correct. Like, but once you've turned the opposition defense and they're running back towards gold, you've basically done half the job. You've basically done half the job. All you need to do is arrive in the right zones and make the right decisions. Uh, It was important for us to score from one of those moments in the first half because the second half was just broken 45 minutes of football. Like, small uh, stoppages, free kicks, uh, the Martinez wasting time, uh, substitutions. It just killed the momentum. And I think... Eventually, of of course, I think the Martinelli sub I didn't agree with. Um, even though I think I don't think he had a good game. Like he was stretching the backline and he just gave us penetration in the backline. So I think it's just a matter of execution in this game. I don't think data would be particularly mad. Uh, apart from the fact that we just didn't score.
2: He said as much, yeah.
0: I do think, and... This is fully on me for not touching on this right at the start, as the first thing we did. But I think an important context to this game is the game state, right? Like mm. Villa score early, early. John begins goals in the seventh minute of the game, and then the whole rest of it, they are set up perfectly to be annoying, really. Um, so we're talking entirely in hypotheticals if we're talking about if Villa didn't score early, but yeah. we have to acknowledge the context of, like, we were, the the game was stacked against us from the seventh minute because Villa didn't have to come at us, open up spaces uh, anymore. They just, they were perfectly happy to sit and let us try and get in behind them. And we couldn't,
1: really. The funny part is that there was so much space, all it needed was wall pass, bang, you're in behind, or like just just the direct ball. How many times did you see us bake the direct ball? How many times did we basically turn the ball high up and just didn't take advantage of it? I like think four times or five times we turn, turned turned had a high turnover. Uh, and we just didn't take advantage of it. Like the pass goes in behind somebody. It's a slow pass. Rice puts it. Odegaard's made the move and Rice is putting the ball where Odegaard was just like a second ago. So, I mean, if you do that, it just breaks all momentum. And obviously, like, the games, like, once you do that in the Premier League, your confidence is shattered and you just have to wait for the players to find the rhythm again.
0: Yeah, it's a silly thing because, obviously, a lot of Arsenal fans came out of this game very frustrated at a variety of things. Um, but people were asking me, like, why are you so annoyed about this game? And the answer is because we weren't even that bad and yet we still couldn't make anything of it at all. Like, that's the frustrating part. It's not that we were shit. It's that we were we did enough and yet still didn't get anything. We got properly uh, FM'd for those of you who play the Football Manager series of video games. Um, I
2: would still contend that's a very I I would agree to a point but I still contend that that's a very charitable way of looking at the game, right? Like the technical execution in the first half was an issue. The, the The goal we conceded, as much as it is a great Villa move, was could have been defended a lot better. And from that moment, as Menas mentioned, they had every avenue of stopping momentum, and that's something teams, some teams, have been able to do to us, and it really hurts us. Right, we're, we're a team that profit so much from a set rhythm. And once a team rids us of that, it exposes some of our weaknesses. And it's not just the the fouling they've done or the the stoppages. It's even in-game, right? They ended the first half with about 46% possession. And a lot of that is just deep build-up. Martinez has the ball or one of their central defenders has the ball. And they just stand on it and, and sort of break your momentum, want you to come at them. And the way we press usually and in this game is not full throttle where we are fully engaging the ball carrier we try to to negate the the local passing options they have and through that we weren't able to truly get at them and they were able to get the momentum out of the game and the other thing and something i, I mentioned on the timeline as well is we lost far too many second balls especially in the second half You cannot be a team that claims to win the league or be in the conversation to win the league if you have performances where you are subpar in that category as much as we were yesterday.
0: Don't get me wrong, Seb. I agree with you entirely. But I think that's the crux of this game, right? This crux of the discussion around this game is that everything you said is 100% true and yet... If you look at it, so it's like the. It's it's an eye test versus stats thing, right? Yeah. Because if you didn't watch this game and you just looked at the numbers on a piece of paper, they would tell you that we did eye, <laughs> like 1.4 XG generated, we just didn't put the ball in the goal. And um, that can be true, while it also being true that there were so many more opportunities that we squandered before it even had chance to become a number on an XG score sheet. We true. had so many yeah, yeah. Mispl- misplaced passes, so many second balls missed. Uh, that's the story of this game. It's one where the flat-out numbers and the eye tests just don't really line up. Yeah, I agree. And one thing we should probably touch on before we move on, because I feel like people will be annoyed if we don't, is the form of Gabrielle Martinelli. Uh, online, I noticed a lot of people frustrated with his performance in this game, uh, because while he was our only threat in behind, well, one of our only threats in behind, and he did manage to stretch Villa with his pace. Uh, he didn't really manage to make much of those chances. And there were lots of people saying things along the lines of, is it time to accept that Gabriel Martinelli is having a bad season? Manas, is it?
1: Um, I don't think he's having a bad season. Uh, he's probably not. I think he's lagging behind his numbers, definitely. Um, I think he was sloppy in the last game. I couldn't control the ball. But he was still our best most incisive and most direct outlet. He was the one that he would send the ball down to over the top of the Villa defence. So I th- I'd say that he's having an average season so far. Uh, and if you look at his numbers, he has four goals and assists so far in 15 games. Um, I think he's definitely due a few goals uh, in the league, at least. Um, but yeah, I'd, I I wouldn't say that he's having a bad season. So I'm uh, not yet, I guess. Yeah, I
2: would categorically disagree with that notion, by the way. I, I think we forget that Martinelli missed a large chunk of the start of the season through an injury, came back into the team after the City game, had to deal with inconsistencies and adaption issues in the front line generally, where we had the Eddie games and then we put Trossard in there. Things started to get a bit more fluid and then Gabriel Jesus coming back is just a very defining factor of how good the attack is. Um, and I think it's ironic that we mention Martinelli having a bad season two games after a run of games that were probably his best of the season with Lens and Sheffield United? Wolves? I think it was Wolves after that. He he gained he's gained momentum and he was put in a game state where he had to be the decider, and I think a lot of people are just angry that he didn't decide when a lot of the situations where he were where he could have been the decider were situations where he's put in positions where he probably couldn't affect the game as much as he as much as people think, I would say.
1: Hmm. I think Seb's point about the attack being barely functional right now. It just started to click. And before at the start of the season, and even now, we're basically a right sided focused team. Like they we barely have a functional left side yet. So I think a lot of it flows through that. So and once our left aids gets settled and you know Kai Havis, whose forms are also starting to pick up a little bit. He's he's been he's the player of the month apparently this season. Uh, this month. I think we'll start seeing Martinelli close the gap on the numbers or what to Saka, very soon.
0: I think this is a good point to leave the discussion on Martinelli and on the Villa game as a whole. We'll go away, have a breather and come back ready to tackle the looting game, which was, while well, it ended on a positive note, frustrating in a couple of different ways. Back in a second. What a lovely break. Looting game uh, was... Well, we won it 4-3, we scored four goals, that's the good bit. We conceded three, that's the bad bit. Let's start with the good. Seb, you've written in the plan that you think this is the most flexible build-up of the season in the looting game. Why do you think that is?
2: Why do I think that is? (laughs) Because that was basically how I saw it, I suppose. Um, I don't think we've seen a game where... There was as much interchange and as little fixity. I think that's an English word. I, I learned that off and I don't think it actually is one, but...
0: Fixity. I think he's made that one up. Excuse me while I Google it. All right, now I'll, I'll shut the fuck up. That one's in the Oxford Dictionary. Fixity. The state of being unchanging or permanent. There we are. Okay, let me start it again. <laughs> no, I want to keep this in. This is funny. <laughs> Alright, so
2: I don't think there was a game this season where there was as little fixity in in the general positions of the players in deep build-up as there was in the Luton game. We saw Kivio coming inside, we saw White coming inside, we saw both going over, we saw either of the eights dropping back in. It was the game with the most touches of uh, Ödegor in deep areas of the field. We saw a bit of 3-2, a bit of 4-1. It was just very, very flexible and not necessarily predictable of which structure we're going to use at any given time when building out deep especially in the first half um and i think it worked well to to gain an advantage of luton even though the the biggest advantages we were able to gain were not necessarily through deep build up of itself but rather just going over them as a whole especially in the conditions the game were played in right the, the pitch of luton's is It's something. um, (laughs) It is something. It reminds me more of a -a five-a-side game or uh, a sort of WWE cage match (laughs) than it does an actual football game. But uh, it's definitely unique uh, conditions where just being able to go over players to a very, very big Kai Havertz was a veritable option and one that we did use a lot.
0: To be fair to Luton, they, they were in the fifth tier of English football, like, 10 years ago. Like, they were playing semi-professional sides 10 years ago, so... I'm not even trying to discredit Luz. <laughs> I mean,
2: it is what it is. That pitch is... is It's probably an advantage to them. I mean, oh, yeah. they have been able to cause every big team they've played this season big issues. I think each of the games, the City won barring, but they did lead against City, but threw it away around 60 minutes-ish. But both Liverpool and Arsenal needed late goals to salvage something from Luton. Uh, Liverpool didn't even get the win; they they got a late equaliser in a game they they dominated, but did uh, have significant issues with Luton's uh, general play.
0: I would like to offer my personal congratulations to Luton's groundsman for scoring a hat trick in this game. <laughs> uh, Manus, what what do you think of the of our build-up structures and well? I say structure it was, it was very flexible the subset,
1: yeah, I think uh there's a macro point here rather than uh focusing more on newton i i guess I want to focus on the past month where I feel uh the players have also started to get a f- a sense of rhythm i think i think we called a a podcast the one before we was called like we talked about rhythm a lot. Uh, and I think Arteta has also started taking off the handbrake a little bit for the, for these guys where I think he's just allowing them to play the football now instead of having very strict positional or predetermined sort of uh, uh, structures. So I think he's allowing more problem-solving by the players on the pitch, which is good for us because we are more... We're very different from a man city who can basically steamroll any any opposition when they want to at any point. We're more we work better when we're more dynamic. And if you introduce more movement uh in the players, uh as long as largely you keep the same positional structures, it's better for us. So I think there's a general Macro theme here where he's allowed a little bit of Collective problem solving on the pitch, where I think Seb said there was there was there were times where we were three one three two, there were times where uh, in the Luton game where we were doing a three three sort of build up where, uh, basically like the, the three centre backs one full back two centre backs one full back and then there's Odegaard Rice or maybe Odegaard, uh, Jesus and Havertz all dropping, uh, to cause problems or numerical overloads. I think that was pretty interesting and I think uh, in terms of like e- even Saliba, when you look look at him and his role in the build-up, he's starting to do, he's starting to take the responsibility a lot more. And I've always said like he's the main progressive passer of the team in the middle third. Uh, he's starting to like step on the ball a little bit, like he he knows when to move the marker, when to pause and then just quickly whip the ball across the marker or beyond his, his the, the guy's going to press him. So I think we're starting to become a little more fluid and that helps that helps Odegaard, that helps Havertz, that helps uh Rice obviously in just being a more dynamic team.
0: Absolutely. And I I remember thinking during the Luton game, and admittedly Game State does come into this because I was thinking this when we were three two down, hunting for the equalizer, hunting for the winner eventually. I remember feeling like mm-hmm. This was some of the most fun I'd had watching Arsenal this season, just in terms of that sheer fluidity, the way that we were pulling Luton to and fro, the way they just couldn't track our movements at all. Like there was some absolutely beautiful pieces of play uh, that that we made in an attacking sense. That was just really, really fun to watch. I think again, asterisk for game state, but I think. When Luton went 3-2 up, we took the handbrake off in a way that we really haven't in any Premier League game this season, I don't think. Like, it it was very fun to watch. And I remember thinking at the time, and I said this in our group chat that we have, and you guys thought I was crazy. Up until, like, really, like, the 95th, 96th minute, I wasn't even that, like, stressed about the game I I wasn't a nervous wreck worried that we weren't going to get the winning goal. I was enjoying the attacking performance that we were putting up and I felt that us getting that winner was an inevitability. Admittedly I did start to worry a little bit when it got into the 96th minute and into the 97th minute even and past when we should have when the game in theory should have been finished. But hey, that's when Declan Rice likes to Likes to pop up and score, so I'm not going to complain. Um, Jesus and Havertz, uh, and their growing, blossoming relationship as an attacking pair was a major theme of how well we did in this game. So, Seb, what do you make of their relationship and how big, how good do you think this can be? The, this Jesus Havertz pair.
2: I think what they do with one another is they maximize each other's strengths. With Jesus, you have a very instinctive player and someone who likes to drop in and wants to participate in the game. And with Havertz, you have one of the most intelligent movers off the ball in the world who is able to pick up those positions and function as a forward even when playing in midfield. Um, Credit to Billy Carpenter, who... Uh, sort of had the best description of those two in tandem as a midfieldery striker and a strikery midfielder, which in theory just works extremely well. And both of Havertz's goals against Lons and uh, in this game against Luton are basically that of uh, Jesus feeding him the ball in a sort of midfield position where Havertz in theory would spend more time to Havertz popping up in nine spaces. And I've always maintained that his greatest qualities come when he arrives into those spaces rather than occupying them the entire time. Um, I I think we need to speak about Havertz generally because he really, really picked up form since the last international break, Um, both in terms of the maximization he gets out of his role when Jesus is playing with him. But also the biggest compliment we can pay him over these last few weeks is that when he is in deeper midfield areas, he looks like a midfielder again. Those very static, very soft layoffs he does to to teammates he did earlier in the season where he did look like a lumbering center forward dropping deep on occasion those are largely gone and he he's back to being someone who understands what he needs to do in certain midfield spaces and someone who who is a lot more comfortable in those spaces and and with his body as well we we talked about the cumbersome nature he showed earlier on in the season and the, the cumbersome body language he showed and the sort of deference he he per he permitted through his actions that's almost entirely gone he's very engaged he's up for fights he he engages in duels and actually gives it to his uh, to his opposition uh which probably is a large part of what endears him to arsenal fans these days as well um and and those dry uh, those driving runs with the ball through deep areas really help us and are some of his best strengths that we're sort of suppressed by having to play as a One-dimensional, tall centre-forward for far too long, in my
1: opinion. Just to add to that, I think uh, he was on record at the beginning of the season, before the season started, I think, where he said that, I need to learn how to be a midfielder again. Mm -hmm. At Chelsea, he was basically the striker in number nine. Uh, And I think he's starting to remember again, maybe. and A little bit of confidence is always key. I Maybe mean, it's it's important to mention. I think his off-ball work because he's player of the season this month, and I would give it to him basically for his off-ball work. In the in the Villa game, he he was the one who caused two high turnovers, and he basically put two balls in the O-zone for Odegaard twice, and he should have scored both of those.
0: goals. Yeah, I'm really glad that we're having this habits like. Love him at the moment. Uh, I think it's really good that we're able to sit here and praise him for the confidence with which he's playing right now. Uh, and Seb, you mentioned earlier Billy Carpenter, and I think Billy did a great job in a few recent articles of, one, putting what was wrong with Habit's game, and then explaining how that's gone. And I'm talking about his hesitations. Like, Havertz previously was kind of visibly unsure of what he should be doing. You mentioned how he needed to relearn how to play midfielder and he was hesitating, uh, with make, when making these runs that we know he's so good at. Um, and it was meaning that he was arriving in the spaces that he should be, but a second too late, the chance has been gone, he'd missed the opportunity uh, and the big, big sign that he's improved his confidence is that that hesitation is no longer there, he's making the runs now and he's getting onto the ends of things and his equalising goal in this losing game came from exactly that, he made, made a run towards the penalty spot, ghosted into the area where Jesus was able to hold the ball up for him and then lay it across for him to put the ball in and I think all of his goals in this recent run of games have come from situations like that where he's just popped up in the right place at the right time and Mm -hmm. he's always known where to be he's just had to remember when to get there and now he's got the confidence to not hesitate with those runs it's it's so good and I'm really happy for him personally that he's doing so well and happy for us as a squad that we've got the eight that we were promised now. Um, you also mentioned his driving runs. They're so fun. What like manus, I remember an early pod in the season. I, I, was it the Community Shield? It was either the Community Shield or like one of the first couple games of the season where there was a clip of Haberts receiving the ball in midfield, and just playing a bounce pass backwards, instead of... where there was a gaping hole behind him if he'd just turned and run. And in these most recent games, we've seen him turn and run again and again, driving at the opposition, taking cues from players like Declan Rice, for which this is bread and butter. It's really fun. I'm enjoying Habits at the moment. Before we were talking about Habits, like German Jolinton kind of thing, like (laughs) half-ironically... Now it's just fun. He's he's playing well. It's great. Unfortunately, we do have to touch on some of the less good things that happened in this game. Uh, namely, that we conceded three goals. None of which were particularly good goals to concede. I'm not going to turn around here and be like, fair play, like I did with the Luton goal. No, the Villa goal. Uh, because there are errors that we made here. Um, Seb you tweeted during or maybe after the game I can't remember uh, that it was nice to have a couple weeks without Raya discourse Um, welcome back
2: (laughs) yeah that that turned far too quickly for my liking Um, I think the case with Raya is, is what it is he's we know why he's here and we know the qualities he brings us but we're just constantly at this point of having to argue if the margins he gives us are outweighing the or not outweighing the margins he's taking away at the moment. And the Luton game is is probably the best example of some of his limitations, albeit some of those are things that goalkeepers just sometimes do. Right? The the corner he conceded where he jumps under the ball, that's just something keepers now and again get caught out with in not judging time appropriately. Onana has done it a fair few times. Uh, if you look back at the Arsenal versus Chelsea women match that happened this weekend, uh, anne Berger for Chelsea did the exact same thing, went under a, a free kick and, and conceded that way. The problem is that this has been a bit of a theme where he has been caught out quite badly in a few moments. I think the next few weeks are really going to be a litmus test of how much of that is incidental work or how much of that is just systemic issues with his play and his his height, I think, (laughs) as much as anything. I think that's something that's really hard to ignore, even though it probably doesn't affect him as much as we think it does. Um but once he jumps under the ball, the discussions about his height just come back again. It's also not great if a couple of minutes later you um jump under a a very meek shot and, and then it's just scrawl under your body. Mm. I, I'm still very undecided on the whole Raya issue. And I think what the main thing we need here is clarity. Clarity in who plays, clarity in who doesn't play clarity in how this position looks long-term. And that's as much a communication issue with the way Arteta handled that situation at the beginning as it is with Ramsdale just being very popular with the fans and that being an issue in people accepting Raya as the keeper.
0: Well, there are quite a few rumours that this the the two-keeper issue particularly is going to be put fed in January. Uh, a few rumours that Ramsdale is going to be uh, offered out to other clubs, either on loan or sold to be sold. Uh, and I'm not sure whether that will affect anything other than stopping people from calling for him to be put back in the side. Um, Ramsdale admittedly did help stop those calls for him to be put back in the side with his um, horror show in the first 20 minutes or so against Brentford. Um it's a frustrating thing to be having to come back to and I've got a couple friends who are Brentford fans who are basically coming up and saying what the hell have you done to David Raya because he was so good for us so like obviously the height stuff what can you do man isn't that tall is what it is but like how to what extent is this like a David Raya problem versus (laughs) a Arsenal goalkeeping coaching problem. Uh, Is it time to lay the blame at the feet of Iganaki Kanya? He's got his guy and yet here we are still. Um, Manus, what what do you make of um, Raya's form and
1: Yeah. I mean, not, I don't think it's going to go away soon. Uh, Hopefully later. But I, I still don't feel that he's gonna let Ramsdale go in in, in January. Who was that? Words. I just want to start with that because like then who is the second keeper? Hein.
2: Um, but in terms of Good old Karl Hein,
1: <laughs> I think uh, in a general sense for how we want to play our football, I think he's with his feet. Uh, we just want him to be that. Center back in build up and the first player in build up. In that sense, I think it's it was a smart buy, but uh, also because like he, he's he's the type of keeper who's gonna come and claim crosses, right? And that was what was impressive. I think it's just for him like there's this thing that you go you you go to a new team and you want to show that you're a great great player, and you've just come and you've replaced the bona fide number one. You you want to prove that you're great. So he's coming out, probably trying to claim crosses that he shouldn't, or, or he should make better decisions on some of those. When he's let a goal versus Luton where I don't think he should come for that cross. It's it's not he's he's never gonna catch that. And he, he like challenges for the ball and he loses it. Um I think the, and and their third goal, the Barkley goal, I think that's just embarrassing because It goes through him. He's basically choosing, yeah. He's no way, there's no way he's going to save that shot by going down with your hands. Like that's the longest path to the ball that you're taking. Just use your feet. Um,
0: Bring in David De Gea, he knows how to use his feet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's who I thought of immediately when I saw him go down on that, on that shot. Uh, I think but with, with Raya, I think it's just variance right now. Um, I think this, this stuff will smooth over. And when you think about it, what we actually need him for is shot stopping and a ball at feet. I think he's pretty good at both. Um, because we concede so few shots, uh, we've just stepped up our defensive game so much, uh, we don't really need our goalkeepers to be involved off ball that much. We, we need them to be good shot stoppers. Because when we give away a transition, because we build, uh, that's just how we play at times. And the second part is being good with ball and feet. So I think the rest of it is, is manageable in the net-net or, you know, it's just like managing it over a season. So I'm not too worried about the whole goalkeeper Raya situation. And I don't, I don't really think he's going to let Ramsdale go in January because... That would be slightly irresponsible because who's this backup keeper then? Someone on Twitter said
2: something really, really interesting there. He he needs a moment. He needs a big moment that endears him to people, mm. right? Like the Ramsdale Madison free kick save against Lester away that his first season. He he didn't have he doesn't have any of that. He he had very notable fuck-ups and very notable games. If if he comes into Liverpool and pulls off something to get us a result there I think a lot of the, the the doubt that probably does affect him in some way or another goes away
0: here we are There's the solution Saliba give away a penalty so Rai can save it and everything will be fine
1: <laughs> I just want to add one more thing uh, I think because teams know that they're not going to get too many opportunities or too many shots against Arsenal uh, I think they, they, you put a more outsized betage on getting something out of set pieces and you watch the Villa game and where they put their pod of players there's basically four or five players standing on Raya's head uh, stopping him from coming in getting the ball and because he's not the tallest he's gonna get beaten if he tries to come in there. So I think people, like that's the sort of game plan and analysis people are starting to come in facing us. To, to wrap up the
0: pod, obviously, Mikel Arteta was given a touchline ban from the Aston Villa game after collecting too many yellow cards. How many was it again? Three, three yellow three cards. For Thank you, Earth managers. Um, with the last one being for over celebration against. Luton, I don't really want to get into the discussions themselves, uh, the, the suspensions themselves, but with us losing on the weekend and with the potential for more suspensions for Mikel Arteta as PGMOL decides how badly badly they want to punish him for yelling at them earlier in the year, how much of an impact do you think it makes not having the
1: manager on the sideline, Manus. I think I think it, uh, so. What Arteta does for us uh, in those little breaks where he's giving instruction, I think it it, it makes a huge difference. Um, you could tell. I think I don't know. It, uh, in in the Villa game, I I don't know if it was his decision or it was uh, it was the decision from the bench to take Martinelli Martinelli off. But I. I wouldn't have done that. If I I feel like if Arteta was there, maybe it would not have been made. Even though he pretty sh- I'm pretty sure he's wired into the into the bench there. But like, I think it's important for the manager to be there just for those little instructions um to the fullback or when the when there's a small water break or or the ball's gone out of play. But yeah, I think it makes a huge difference.
2: I don't think there are m- two managers that are as active on the touchline in terms of micromanaging little movements of their teams as uh, Mikel Arteta and Unai Emery are. They're quite similar in in that respect. And I think that's one of the things you lose there in terms of Arteta constantly giving little instructions to the team as well as what Mena said in the short breaks we have. If uh, Arteta gives the instruction for Raya to just sit down for a bit so the team could have a little team talk... Um so yeah, it does impede us. I, I would say that substitution patterns probably still are in Arteta's hands, considering he is wired into uh the coaching staff down below and uh has actually a better vantage point of seeing how the game goes than he does when he's on a touchline. But in terms of just the very minute details that a coach is able to correct on the sidelines, yeah, we 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 just miss that if he's not there and it it just feels like punishing an individual for speaking up. I just can't shake that feeling.
0: Yeah. It's not good. It's not fun. Um,
2: Especially considering Pep Guardiola gave it the big against Luton, <laughs> celebrating towards their bench. And uh, shock horror, he was not penalized for that.
0: I, yeah, I, I think the over-celebration was like because he had loads of people around him, and they specifically brought in that rule of only you can be standing up, and that's it. You know, the anti-Jason Tindall rule. Yeah,
2: um, but there's also a rule that you can't leave your technical area, yeah, I think and that was Guardiola my... literally went over to the Luton technical area to give it the big in, in their face, and uh, was not punished for it. Yeah. And Jason Tindall still also just stands on the touchline repeatedly in, Lu- in Newcastle games, but that's by the bye.
0: And on that note, I think this is a good point on which to wrap up the pod. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a like and a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help us out, but not as much as you telling your Arsenal friends where to find us. And hell, even just your non-Arsenal-loving, tactics nerds, football friends, uh, give us a plug. We can't plug ourselves all the time, uh, and it really, really does help us out, so... Uh, thank you in advance for sharing the pod. Thank you as well to Manus and Seb for joining me on this uh, therapy exercise after these two very high emotions games. Uh, you can find them on Twitter in the links that are in the description, as well as any of us from the Pop shop crew. You can also find down there the pod Twitter at pod. Uh Send us any questions you may have. Uh, or if you would... Drill through in the earth, or go for a nice little walk around the earth. Let us know what you think. Uh, thank you to James Blake for making the music. You can find him on all good music platforms at J W Blake. And thanks again to you for listening. We will be back next week after the PSV and Brighton games. They are coming thick and fast now.
1: See you there for it. Cheers. Doom doom.